0: Have you ever wondered what it's like to sit in on a magazine editorial meeting? Well, this is your chance. You're listening to Salt Lake Speaks, a monthly podcast where our editors, writers, and staff dig deeper into stories, chat with newsmakers, and talk amongst ourselves about arts, culture, food, music, politics, or whatever else might strike our fancy. After all, we are Utah's biggest fans. Hi, this is Andrea Peterson, and you're listening to Salt Lake Magazine's own podcast, Salt Lake Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by SLC MedSpa. SLC MedSpa introduces the only guaranteed cellulite treatment, Cellfina. Cellfina results are guaranteed for a year, or you will be treated again for free. Call SLC MedSpa for a complimentary consultation at 801-419-0551. The morning of November 11th, 2016 began like any other Friday morning for Charla Bocchicchio. She woke up to her alarm going off and was ready to get out of bed for an early morning yoga practice to kick off her weekend. And just like the rest of us, she grabbed her phone to see what she might have missed during the sleeping hours of the night. But unlike the rest of us, she found a throng of missed calls and text messages from her ex-husband, Chris Cochran, including a daunting notification. Cassidy Aspen Cochran was born June 22, 1994. Without hesitating, Bokikio quickly called Cochran to hear the thing every parent dreads to hear. She's gone. Cassidy's gone, she's dead. Cassidy, only 22 years old, had passed away of an opioid overdose. High doses of fentanyl had been found in her system by the medical examiner. Cassidy and her boyfriend Frank thought they were taking heroin, but it ended up being something more lethal. Across the nation, fentanyl is now the fifth most common drug involved in overdose deaths. Counterfeit pills are common on the street, but with fentanyl, one person may take a fake pill and use it, and the next person may take the pill and die almost instantly. In Cassidy's case, according to the medical examiner, she unknowingly injected a lethal dose of it. In 2016, more Americans died of drug overdose than died in the Vietnam War. Two-thirds of those overdose deaths were from opioids. The opioid addiction is on the rise and is being referred to as an epidemic. But yet, it has still not been declared a public health crisis by the Utah legislature. Joining us today is Cassidy's mother, Charla Bokicchio, to help spread awareness about the opioid epidemic by sharing Cassidy's story. Thank you for being here.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: It's been a little over a year since Cassidy passed, and you have a lovely blog that's called My New Normal that you wrote along the process. It is very raw and incredibly honest. If you are able to share with our listeners a little bit about Cassidy's background and the struggles that may have led to that fateful night. Um,
1: Cassidy was, well, other than being like the brightest star and the most wonderful child, um, she had a good bit of anxiety even as a young child and it's something we kept an eye on and tried to be really aware of but as she got into her middle school years she you know struggled like all other preteens do and but hers happened to be worse because she had the anxiety and then the underlying depression and we found out later um, she had personality disorder most likely borderline personality disorder. We found out later that was probably always kind of in the shadows there. So as as a preteen, as a very young teen, she um, she started some fairly unhealthy behaviors. She started cutting at about age 12. We, of course, took her to treatments to therapists. Um, she spent a few days in a psychiatric ward, a, an adolescent psychiatric ward at that time. So we were trying to figure all of this out as she was growing. And eventually, she. we found out later, she had um, been drinking quite a bit with her friends at a very young age, experimenting with a variety of drugs um, that we did not know until later. But I am convinced that she was self-medicating she was trying to find something that was going to make her feel better because her normal was too painful. So as she continued, she was uh, 15 the first time she tried heroin and this was already after probably six months or so of um, experimenting with some other pretty illicit drugs, cocaine. She was with a, a boy at the time who kind of had this Uh, he had easy access to a lot of these kinds of drugs and so it made it really easy for her to move in that direction. She and her boyfriend at the time were doing cocaine mostly we found out and she didn't like the way it made her nose feel so she thought, why don't we inject it? That's brilliant, right? It's fast. So once she introduced the needle into her life, that opened up a whole new area for her. And their drug dealer, one day they went to get cocaine, and he said, hey, here's something for free you can try. It was heroin, and she never went back. Once she tried heroin, the way it made her feel, she was, yeah, there was no way that she could ever go back from that, I'm convinced.
0: So you kind of mentioned you know, in your blog and just now uh, that there were signs even way back into third grade, and moving into high school, and what specific signs were you seeing along the way?
1: As a very small child, well, even in like elementary school and younger, uh, we saw small signs of like some OCD behaviors in her. Um, she would. I found a a notebook next to her bed when she was four years old of times written from her digital clock from like 9.01, 9.02, 9.03 until like 10 o'clock until she probably fell asleep. So those kinds of things. She was fairly obsessive with, um, she developed these little ticks like uh, she'd lick lick her finger and then rub it on her mouth and she did it so much this is when she was quite young that she got really chapped lips around you know it's just a little behavior like that that is a very obsessive kind of thing that is Really, related to anxiety, because that's what you know OCD is. It's an anxiety disorder. So there were those very those things that were happening at a very young age. Um, and then when she got into elementary school, she really struggled in school because she wasn't like the typical learner. I mean, she was really smart, but she was always kind of getting into trouble and her teachers didn't know what to do with her. She was very social but she kind of, I don't know, she was challenging to have in a classroom of other typically developing kids who you know learned in the way that they were teaching. So her third grade teacher, um, she was convinced that something was wrong with her. She had her kind of go through this battery of tests including IQ testing, um, all kinds of things. I can't even remember all the tests they did with her at that time but we got, ba- we got the results back and we're sitting in this office with the counselors and the teacher and the principal and the assistant principal and they're going over these results going well they kind of just threw their hands up because they're like well she's actually above average iq wise all of the tests were like normal so they didn't know what to do with her <laughs> so there we were kind of stuck again so when
0: did it kind of go from things were seemed off and different mm-hmm. at school to like maybe we need do something and to explore this more from, like you said, like a psychiatric, a a mental behavioral sort of thing.
1: We did, um, when she was very young, when she was four, we saw a play therapist at the time because we were worried. Even from a very young age, we were using the tools that we had, we just, I think that the tools aren't quite enough
0: that's why i was going to (laughs) ask you mentioned that in your blog too Mm -hmm. like you're like we were doing what we could with what we had yeah um like what were some of the tools that you had and what did you feel was missing now that you look back right so
1: other than you know the therapy in the traditional sense once she we found out she was cutting we had her go to the psychiatric ward that was all referred by her therapist once we found out that she was doing heroin we You know, had her in sort of those traditional things that you do. You put her in drug rehab and then that didn't seem to quite work. And so we were terrified and we were afraid that we were going to lose her. So we went to more extreme measures, which was finding a, a residential treatment center in southern Utah. And at the time, we were living in Alabama, so that was quite a, <laughs> a thing to think about sending your 16-year-old daughter off for probably nine months, you know. We did everything that we could. I don't know, it's funny, I've, I've been asked this question a lot, what would, you know, in retrospect, what would I do differently? I don't know that, I still don't know that there are tools out there that are really helpful. If I could go back knowing what I know now, I would never give up on the treatment stuff. You know, after a while you kind of get worn down when you've spent upwards of $100,000 on treatment, on rehab, on you know, it's so expensive. And,
0: And yeah, so speaking of money, because especially when it has to do with rehab, how much is this insurance coverable and how much is out of pocket? insurance covers barely anything most insurance covers or
1: at least in my experience what we had they covered like a 28 days in a year of traditional rehab you know you send them off and they spend it is the typical you hear about that the 28-day programs so that would be covered but if you've got someone with a chronic disorder like substance use disorder 28 days isn't going to be enough. That's not going to fix everything. So you're constantly having to go back or seeking out even more extreme treatment options, which when we found the treatment center here in Southern Utah, that was not covered at all by insurance. The only part that was covered by insurance was the cost from the psychiatrist that was on staff because he was the medical doctor. So there was like a very small percentage that, that we could try to get reimbursement for from insurance. But it, I mean, it was just a drop in the bucket at that point.
0: So speaking of insurance, is it because she was diagnosed with a mental disorder, or a disease, because we talk about like substance abuse and addiction and where does that all play into? when something is covered and who gets to decide how much and what as you were going through the process.
1: Right, I mean every insurance plan is a little bit different. Some insurance plans have um, that part that cover like uh, psychologists or therapy or whatever. We had some coverage for some of that included in our plan but what we found was that those long-term treatment programs just simply weren't covered in what we had and we had a pretty pretty darn good insurance plan. I mean, my husband at the time was a lawyer. He his firm, they had one of the best insurance plans ever. You know, so it's not like we were <laughs> you know, on Medicaid and we're, you know, trying to get approval with every little thing. So, for hours. And again, it's going to be different for everybody out there. But,
0: but it's kind of scary to think about that. Like if you run out of money and you've got something like a mental disorder and like thinking about maybe the people that you've spoken with or like just even your own. You're like, you get to a point where you're like, I have no more money yeah. to help my daughter. Absolutely. Did you guys get to that point or was there other things involved?
1: Well, you know, after she, look, you know, when you spend $75,000 on, on an inpatient residential treatment program that you don't have in the bank, you know you're you're taking out loans we took out personal loans from the bank so that we could get treatment for our daughter after that we it's kinda like we felt like we were this was the last-ditch effort and if this didn't work we kinda threw our hands up we didn't know what what would work because we all the research we did this was one of the best treatment facilities ever for this kind of issue and it wasn't just a drug rehab this was a residential treatment center that was looking at the whole person. They were treating her psychiatric issues and the drug, um, the substance use disorder as well. So yeah, we kind of ran out of money. I mean, we could have gotten more loans, you know, if, if if we felt like it would really help, but you kind of reach that point where she gets out of a nine month treatment program and a few months later, she's relapsed.
0: So going off of that, I mean, they the numbers show that about 10% of people with substance abuse problems actually get treatment, and Cassidy was, mm-hmm. and like you said, had just gotten out of that nine-month residential program. What maybe are some aspects of the program that did do you, along the way did you feel were unsuccessful for Cassidy or that didn't help for her relapses?
1: Here's what's interesting about residential treatment. It works while they're there because it provides incredible structure, it provides this um, they, they have all the tools right there. They have accountability every day and the structure again is hugely important. But once you take them out of that safe environment that's heavily structured like that, I think it doesn't quite translate to the real world. Now this program did a very good job at having um, a, a really, well, a, a, as as well as they knew they had this transition kind of part of the program where the girls would come back for home visits there would be um, they'd have more privileges every time they would come home in the hopes that you could transition them from that bubble of treatment to being home on their own but I think that um, I think the reality is that it just it's just not enough the more I've looked at treatment options for opiate use disorder in particular I think that a medical piece of it is really important and and they're starting to talk about this more I was just reading an article today that was talking about that part of it that um, I can't remember what they call it medical medically supported treatment or something like that there's a term we should look up but it's basically using some of these drugs like Suboxone it's some people call them opiate replacement therapies. I don't like that term because that's just a personal thing for me. I think it's okay to accept that you might need a replacement because it is a physically addictive drug and it's remapping the brain. I mean that you can't you kind of don't stand a chance especially when you've got it introduced to a brain that's 15 years old. This is a developing brain anyway so you've got this highly addictive drug that is telling your brain that it needs, needs, needs it. I mean, it's it's like, what do you do? Of course you kind of do need it. So isn't it okay to still give a safe amount? That would be my question, but we stigmatize it. And we, I think in general, I think society says, no, all opiates are bad. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's an opiate, we, we've got to get them off. That's the only way to, to do it is they've just got to, they've got to be clean. So it's kind quotes. of like a
0: cold turkey sort of aspect, or is there like a weaning off? Well, I think any, any,
1: any responsible treatment center is going to yeah. wean them off because withdrawal is pretty tough. But um, there are some programs that use Suboxin, which is, I don't know all the ins and outs of Suboxin, but I do know that it, from what I understand, it blo- it blocks the opioid receptors so that even if you were to use heroin, it wouldn't really work. It doesn't give them the high that they get from heroin or fentanyl. But again, I don't know all the specifics of it. I do know that Cassidy tried Suboxone for a while and left to her own devices, she just was still craving the heroin or she would do okay with the Suboxone for a while and then something would happen in her life and, and she would kind of fall off the edge, you know, and then she'd kind of fall down into that, that group of people that was unstable or she'd have a relationship that went bad and she'd go to her, to her fallback, which was heroin.
0: Speaking of that, you mentioned in your blog and in the articles and stuff that she struggled with depression and anxiety and wanted to Mm -hmm. self-medicate. Was there no prescriptions that she was getting from doctors and and the medical world that would help her that would lead her to not have to self-medicate?
1: That's a good question. (laughs) She had some medications for her psychiatric issues, but here's the I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, psychiatric medicine is such a, it's not like a, an exact science from what I've seen. So much of it is just experimenting with okay, how does this drug make you feel? We'll try this medication for a while. What are the side effects? Oh, okay, that's too uncomfortable. Well, then we'll change you. So it's like, she was going back and forth between medications because they were trying to find the magic pill and the truth is there is no magic pill unless you try heroin which seems like the magic pill for at the time you know what i mean so like that's why you, it's so powerful
0: do you know what it was that felt so perfect and like a good fix for her aside from the addiction obviously but like what was it in it that like seemed to be the solution for cassidy
1: what was it about the heroin Mm -hmm. again i've never done heroin but i have taken an opiate for post-surgery and i do know that feeling of um, euphoria but what she i guess what she talked about because i i mean we, we did talk a lot about it once she was in uh treatment what i got from her was that it was that moment where everything else just drops away like all of the worry all of the anxiety, her mind gets quiet, and she's finally able to be at peace in her own body. I think that's what happened the first time she did it, and then the really messed up thing is, she probably kept trying to get that same feeling by continuing the use, and from what I understand, it's like chasing the dragon. You never can quite get what you had the first time, so you increase the dose and you do it more and you think that you need to have that all the time. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we would be lying to, I think we'd be lying to our kids if we didn't say drugs feel good. Because they do. They serve a purpose. Opiates were created for a reason, right? They were introduced into medicine for a reason. They relieve pain. They make us feel better. So I think we can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can't get rid of opiates. Um, I have family members who rely on opiates because of chronic pain, they're disabled, they couldn't live without them. The difference is the substance use disorder piece and the treatment of that when it becomes an issue because there are people I know who have to have opiates to live, but they don't have substance use disorder because it's not getting in the way of their life. Sure,
0: it's, so it's managed. like a bad mixture. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of going off of that, you're talking about the idea of how we refer to things or not refer to things, in an article you were part of, Sarah Wakeman, a medical director of the Substance Use Disorders Initiative and the Addiction Consult Team at Massachusetts General Hospital, believes that words we use create the stigma around drug abuse. Using words like abuse create a culture of shame. Thinking about that and thinking about how you were with Cassidy and even just moving forward now, how does this affect someone and what kind of verbiage have you found would be better
1: I think this is a huge part of it this is this is the key to starting to destigmatize it this language piece because it's so much a part of our of how we speak that we don't even know we're doing it and I have to keep myself in check too because I'll do it um, things like rather than using clean you know like oh it, it, referring to a, someone who's suffering with addiction issues as clean. Because if we use the word clean when they're not using, that would imply that when they are using, they're dirty, right? I mean, it's like that opposite thing. <laughs> so changing the, some of the language to, you know, if they're clean, in quotes, um, maybe we s- instead say they are in remission or they are in recovery or they're not actively using. Some other things, uh, you know, on a very, well, this is a fairly a harsh one, but we use it and that's the word junkie. We use it in a sort of innocuous way. I mean, we even say, you know, I'm a, a, a Netflix junkie or a chocolate junkie. You know, we kind of throw that around. But it's a really hurtful word to someone who is going through some of these problems with addiction.
0: You know, you've done a lot of activism since Cassidy's passing looking back at you know why you were going through times with Cassidy especially in high school and you know what kind of advice do you have for others about maybe some of the situations that you found yourself in about how you and Cassidy talked about um, her drug usage or her mental diseases
1: I think as far as advice that I would give I mean all I have is my own experience but I could you know I, I think what I'd want parents to know is to not judge them. You know, if you've got someone, if you've got a child that is suffering, literally suffering from a substance use disorder, and it's a disease, it's like any other disease, it's like having diabetes or Parkinson's or cancer or whatever, it is a disease. If we can look at it that way as parents and do everything we can in our power to help them with that disorder, just like we would if we found out they had diabetes, I think that would be be my advice to parents. To, to treat it like the medical issue that it is. And what that does, if we can learn to do everything in our power to help it medically, then that does take away that judgment and the stigma. Because we've got, oh my gosh, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating. The behaviors that happen when you've got someone who is suffering with substance use disorder, the behaviors are just about as bad as they get, you know. It's really frustrating as a parent to try to deal with it.
0: I mean, were there moments of, I mean, you mentioned a little bit in your blog about there were some mistakes you made along the way and like, Definitely. Were what we're kind of
1: I, I, like any parent, wanted my child to feel comfortable and to be happy. And so I think some of my biggest mistakes had to do with that because I didn't want her to suffer. And so I would try to soften the blow for her um, as far as consequences from behaviors that, that were going on. I would, let me think of some really bad enabling that I did because I really did. I was an enabler. And you don't ever want to. You don't want to enable someone to self-destruct. But what you end up doing is, you try to make them comfortable. You don't want them to feel the, the full effects of their, of their behaviors. And so you end up making excuses for them, lying for them, writing a, a school excuse because you know she's withdrawing. <laughs> but you don't want her to get in trouble at school. Things like that. And it's embarrassing, you know, to, to even admit that you've done those things. But you just want her to be.
0: It's interesting when we talk about mental disease and disorders and word choices and whatnot, and still it's so easy for society to sit there and say, Oh, well, you just like drugs and you're just a terrible person, and just put a blanketed statement over it. And it's interesting to point out that the week Cassidy died, the US Surgeon General came out with a groundbreaking report stating that addiction is a chronic brain disease, not a moral failure. And I mean, that's huge and we still kind of like look at it as like tsk, tsk, tisk. and you know, in fact, the Surgeon General stated that 21 million people were suffering with substance use disorder and that's more than those with cancer and that's a huge number that we, we don't even look at it. and it's a taboo and we don't talk about it and it's like cancer and the fact that it is an issue that is bigger than cancer mm-hmm. and but cancer has such a larger mm-hmm. awareness out there. Right. I'm just wondering, you know, since you've become an activist or, you know, a voice for this, what kind of changes are you seeing or are you hoping to see moving forward when people look at something like opioid abuse and Mm -hmm. abuse. There I use the word. I know. Um, It's hard (laughs) not to. It's hard not to because it's been ingrained in us. Right. So what do you see that's happening, or you know what are you part of right now?
1: Well, I think I have noticed that there's been a bit of a change, and it's going to take a while, right? It, like you said, like just th- using those words, it's going to take time. And once we change the culture and how we talk about it, I think that it, it really has to start there, because if that piece <coughs> isn't in place, then we will continue to treat it as a moral failing, as um, a judgment. You know, we're, we're we put these people in this category of, you know, they're just making bad choices where it's really not about free will at all at, at a certain point. You know, maybe the first time they picked up the needle it was about free will, but after that it's over. So, I think I think once the the stigma piece is is kind of taken care of or or maybe we're we're teaching kids in school the appropriate terminology for it, we're talking about it to our kids as parents in the in the proper way. Um, I think even media is doing a a much better job. Um, Just my searching online for articles and things as I kind of go about my day, I'm very pleased to see that they're starting to use appropriate terminology um, in a lot of the written articles that I'm seeing and even in the news. But once that happens, then I think the treatment piece is next because we have to find appropriate treatments treatments that are working that are not just putting them away for a certain period of time and then reintroducing them back into society and going good luck with the pat on the back like that doesn't work so hopefully that's all happening now I don't know I don't know what the psychiatric community is doing as far as moving forward with new treatments I do know that they're talking a lot about this um, medically assisted assisted therapy Option, you know, the 12-step program that's been around forever. A lot of people were coming out and saying, you know what, the 12 steps are not enough for people who have opiate um, use disorder. It's it's not enough. That spiritual component that it seems to work for a lot of alcoholics or you know people who are suffering with other kinds of substances, for whatever reason, that the opiate piece is it's a, it's just too powerful to be taken care of with the 12 step program. So, yeah, we've got to we've got to figure that out. Hopefully, once we figure that out or maybe it happens at the same time, then the insurance piece happens along with it, which is, you know, means the insurance is actually covering these treatments like they would chemotherapy or whatever, you know, whatever kind of drug that they need. So I think there's so much (laughs) that has to happen, but it's doable. I really believe that it can be done. I think talking about the prescription problem, because a lot of people, you know, I think a a lot of what's in the media right now is people saying, well, prescription drugs are the problem and we need to get the doctors to stop prescribing all these opiates, which is fine and good, but some people need them. And the people who really need them or, or who have already developed substance use disorder because they were prescribed them, they're gonna find it somehow. They're not gonna wait for a doctor to prescribe it to them. They're gonna find it on the street. They're gonna look for heroin or fentanyl or whatever. So that's a whole other beast, like the whole prescription piece of it.
0: No, it is, cause I mean, that is a number that we have that like, you know, 80% of heroin users started with prescription mm-hmm. opioids, mm-hmm. you know? And so it is kind of one of those things that, you know, it is needed medically, Mm -hmm. but then it's like, you you mentioned discussing that, it's that trigger in the brain that Mm -hmm. says, I still need it, I need more of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it alters it. It's not just like alcohol feels good, it's like the brain is now telling you, you have to have it. Yeah. Which changes things. It does. Totally changes things. Yeah, it's (laughs) a big change.
1: But then they also are saying that, at least what they understand, is that some people have a genetic predisposition for it. That, you know, No two people are alike, so you could introduce the the same drug to two different people, one with the genetics of um, some of those addictive disorders and one without, and it doesn't seem to take hold as much on the person that doesn't have the, the genetics for it. So that's a whole other thing that's out of our control.
0: Well, it's interesting going back to Cassidy's story because there was a moment in her life and you had found this school assignment letter of her writing kind of outside Perspective of her life, and towards the end of the letter, she talks about how like she's gonna start over. She's gonna move to L.A. She has a manager and an agent, and she's gonna act and she's going to clean thing not clean things up, but clean things up and um, start over with a new brand of herself. And yet, she ended up relapsing. It's just too powerful. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of those moments
1: where a future looked bright and a future looked even possible.
0: And but it, and it was interesting in her letter she referred to today. Mm-hmm. I feel good today, mm-hmm. and I think that's important that there's a, but there's a tomorrow. And Cassidy found tomorrow was not the same as today when she was writing it. Yeah. When those moments kind of happened as a mom mm-hmm. and a support system and a friend, as you kind of refer to yourself mm-hmm. with her, you know what was that like as an outsider? You know, because we talk about the user a lot mm-hmm. and the person involved with the disorder, but for you, was there is there any advice or just talking mm. about the support system around someone yeah. struggling?
1: you know, substance use disorder is not, it doesn't only affect the person affected with it, or, you know, it, that, that has it. it. It is kind of called, well, a lot of people call it a family disease. And it is. I mean, it definitely, it affects the entire family because it it, it deals so much with, the breakdown of relationships when you introduce these substances that are getting in the way of life. Yeah, it's hard. It, it's it, it's really hard to love somebody that is suffering like that. And I think the only advice really is to, you just have to keep loving them. You know, try to put the judgment aside and just love them and enjoy every single second that you have with them. I I thought I was going to have a tomorrow with Cassidy, and I didn't. You know, I thought I would have time to call her back from that last phone call that she made. I thought I'd have time. I put it off. That night, she had called. I didn't answer. I was teaching a class. I looked at my phone later in the evening, and I thought, oh, I should call her. Nah, I'll just call her tomorrow. And that was seriously, that was the only chance I had to call her was then. There was literally no tomorrow for her.
0: The word choices and the verbiage that we use around such things like disorders and diseases. And you've been very open up about the circumstances surrounding Cassidy's death from the moment you spoke about it on Facebook and your blog and the obituary. Um, in your blog, you even say, uh, you know, we never intended to become the poster family for this issue, but here we are. Cassidy died of heroin overdose. This is our truth. And you know for being the voice and Cassidy a face for the opioid epidemic you know how are you doing reliving her story over and over again to be an advocate for others
1: you know to tell you the truth it's actually fairly been fairly therapeutic for me I can't imagine just tucking it away somewhere you know in the recesses of my mind and my psyche like that just seems like a recipe for disaster you know that it's gonna eventually rear its ugly head so for me talking about it, spreading awareness about the disease, um, being honest about it is, it's freeing for me. You know, It's kind of like me shouting from the mountaintop, this happened, this is real, her life was real, it, it, she existed and we've got to do better. We have to do better as a community, as a society, as a nation. I mean, this, the fact that this is killing so many people in the United States, it's, it's unacceptable. I think it's unacceptable.
0: Well, on that note, where can people find Cassidy's story or learn more about everything? Um, what exactly is your blog? Your
1: My blog, um, the website is mynewnormal473.wordpress.com.
0: We'll have a link to it on the website okay. so people can go to yeah, it. Yeah, perfect. I know you took a brief pause for a little bit and then you came back to write. Is that still something you're actively kind of just checking in with?
1: You know, I last, it's been a few months and I, I kind of had had an epiphany and I felt like I had kind of graduated. Like I I didn't need to write anymore, but I, I always, I told myself even then that if if stuff came up and and things felt important to write about that I would do it but it I didn't want it to just become this diary of mine that was every thought that I was having so I am only going to write from now on when I feel like I have something important to say. And right now, I think I'm going to let it sit for a while. A lot of people keep coming back to it. I check on the traffic of it now and then. And there are still many, many people who are, who are reading from the beginning, from that very first post that I did. So I know that it's still got a message that's, that is hopefully reaching people who need to hear it. I've had a huge, a really huge following in the, the communities that I found on Facebook for the support groups for families who have lost people, kids or, or other family members to uh, overdose. And for whatever reason, it's speaking to them in a really positive way. So that makes me feel really good. Um, I'm not sure what it is about it that they're liking, but um, maybe just the unedited kind of rawness of it. Is, is helping them not feel so alone in those feelings that they're having.
0: Well, thank you for joining us, Charla. And this has been another episode of Salt Lake Magazine's own podcast, Salt Lake Speaks. You can find this and other episodes at saltlakemagazine.com slash podcasts. Again, this podcast has been brought to you by SLC MedSpa, the only guaranteed cellulite treatment, Selfina. Selfina results are guaranteed for a year or you will be treated again for free. Call SLC MedSpa for a complimentary consultation at 801-419-0551.